your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Today on Off Tackle Empire, it's soup season, it's hoodie season, it's, well, it's still construction season because it's the Midwest, it is fall, and we are talking about Big Ten football because you know what other season it is? It's time to make sweeping prognostications about your team that are going to age real poorly in a couple of weeks because they've now played four games. Some of us also have enough data to say things that won't age that poorly, but oh yeah, I digress. Uh, I'm Steve Braun, also known as Thumpsaurus. You're listening to Off Tackle, Empi- Off Tackle Empire, the affiliate of Off Tackle Empire. I'm with my co-host, Andrew Krzyzewski, and uh, we had some very different sports experiences this weekend because uh, I chose to go to the Detroit City FC game where I saw the 2-2 two two variant of the Detroit City FC home game, which the was, ra- of course, the, a draw. The rarest of Detroit City draws. It usually... It's the 1-1 the variety is by far the most common. Occasionally you get the scoreless draw, which is truly a disheartening thing to watch, especially if your team is way better, which ours usually is when they're playing at home, but it never matters. Because uh, the thing that, yeah. that sucks, I mean, the thing that was cool about the 2-2 is that you get to celebrate goals twice. And also the other team scores twice. Yes. And... One of the goals Tulsa scored happened to be a player with a long history against Detroit City, who all of us hate, but... You know, that's just sort of the nature of the beast anyway. So I did not go to that. Instead, I went to East Lansing to watch Michigan State, Minnesota. It was a great time. I have no regrets. We'll get to that later. I don't feel like talking about it right now. Well, yes, I did see my team score. So that's That's true. I left before Michigan State got their garbage time touchdown. So I thought, see, I thought that they were on their way to giving you a loving tribute to your Wisconsin trip. Um, yeah, because they were at the third and goal there, but that'd be the thirty-eight nothing, and either it had to be twenty eighteen. Yeah, Didn't no, it was twenty nineteen to... because that was the year that Wisconsin started off the year like not getting scored on by anybody. I might have to argue with you on this because, well, yeah, yeah who can say? Because it's immaterial. We... It was before twenty twenty, so it might as well yeah, be ancient. My history. my road tripper group and I did Wisconsin and Nebraska in consistent year in consecutive years. That were the last two years of the D'Antonio era. I don't remember which was which. I, I thought Wisconsin was eighteen, but I could have it backwards. The point is both those games sucked in entirely different ways. Uh, this game was worse than either of them, and I didn't even have to drive twelve hours to get there. So Well, let's first talk about uh Chattanooga not actually being as much of a threat as I was uh, concerned about. You were such a nervous Nelly for no reason. Yeah, for no reason? I mean... Yeah, for no reason. I, for no reason. There was no point in this game where Illinois was seriously threatened. I, I, well, I did put because, this into my because, recap because shot. Because it was 10 relatively late in the second quarter. Like I did put this in my recap shot video over on the Champagne Room. I don't really remember the last time that we played three teams of any variety in a season and dominated three games the way that we did our non-conference. And that doesn't necessarily say anything about Illinois, but a lot of past, a lot of Illinois teams of the past 10 years would struggle to find a non-conference where they could so thoroughly dominate three teams on defense. They've still not been scored on at home. Um, It is very weird that they have chosen to throw the ball when dominating games, but at least 
if that means they're treating this like a scrimmage to tune up their passing game, good. That's the mentality that you need to have when you're clearly the superior team, which is, again, a position that I'm not accustomed to being in in any college football game. So, uh, Illinois, of course, has their entire season coming up in the next three weeks because we can draw a pretty reasonable conclusion about the entire thing based on the results of these following games. Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota. They're all very similar, and they're all going to be the teams that the teams to beat in the West. So, if Illinois can win one of those, I am overjoyed, because that means the bowl game is a lock. Moving on to Big Nude Saturday. It was uh, extreme nudity very early for the Terps, as oh, yeah. they gave up a touchdown for, Showed, like, like, just for nothing. Showing the entire perineum to the world. Uh... The, the opening kickoff hit Maryland's returner in the face and Michigan recovered and scored a touchdown three seconds in. Truly remarkable. There cannot have been many quicker touchdowns scored by the team kicking off in a game. You, now, can't, you can't do it much faster. The crazy thing about that is, at the time, it seemed like a, oh shit, here we go again. Where yeah. it was going to be like, all right, Maryland the is the first of yeah, many, right? Mar- Maryland turns into a pumpkin when the count, not even turns to October. But how it ended up being was that that score was actually the difference yeah. in this game, <laughs> if yeah. you can believe that. Michigan ended up nursing a four point lead at halftime. It ended up being a one. Now they opened up a lead in the second half such that Maryland had to make a bit of a comeback to make it close. Um, but yeah, look, this Michigan defense definitely is not what it was last year. That's plain to see. It is also plain to see, however, that this Michigan offense, especially when they just let Blake Corum have the ball, is very good. Capable of scoring on just about anybody and moving the ball more or less at will. Um, still feels like there is... Like the funny thing is, if they had gone with their game plan for most of last season in this game and given Corum 20 carries, given... CJ Stokes 15 when the game was still competitive, they probably would have put it away a little earlier. Instead, they are trying to iron out the passing game, which I wanted them to do all of last year, and they didn't, and it worked out fine. And this will probably work out fine for them too, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stop my thoughts there. Let it just be said that offseason behavior does not end up having any impact on what happens to you during the season. So, anyway, uh, yeah. Blake Corum had a career high in yardage. I think it was the highest single-game rushing total since Denard Robinson was around. And you recall the truly outlandish numbers that he used to put up, um, albeit mostly against the Western Michigans of the world. This isn't a conference game. No, the record was against UConn. Yeah, I'm sure it was. (laughs) The reason I remember that was because of whose record he erased at UConn. The quarterback that Mike Loxley took there back in 2008, Juice Williams. I couldn't help but think of Mike Loxley being in this position before. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it was kind of interesting. So, anyway, the other thing, I mean, that mistake early by Maryland to set up Michigan with a touchdown... If not for that, boy, the tenor of this game is very different because you might see some. You might have seen something like a, uh, you know, like a like a like a thirteen to three lead late in the second quarter for Maryland. Talia Tagovailoa played acquitted himself reasonably well in this game. Um, played hurt a little bit. Had two 
absolutely backbreaking picks. I mean, the 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 one late in the in the second quarter set up Michigan's touchdown to take the lead before halftime. Um, and then one of the the other one was in the fourth quarter. I believe, let me see exactly when that was. But that 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 turnover late in the second quarter was an absolute killer. Uh, yeah, this the the one in the fourth quarter was when the score was twenty seven to nineteen. Um, so very very. I mean, I mean, it's hard to say it wasn't a great showing for the Maryland defense because they did force Michigan to punt more times than I think people were expecting. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to really say that it was a good defensive performance when a back went for 243 on you. Yeah, and it, again, probably could have been more. Michigan definitely used a few of their first half possessions to try to iron some stuff out in the passing game. Um, but yeah, I, I think it really from the first time I saw him. It was apparent that Corum was a special talent and was going to do some dangerous things for Michigan. Um, the other thing I'm not entirely clear about is how long Donovan Edwards is going to be out with this injury. Most programs are pretty opaque with their injury information these days, so there's really no telling. But with his backup being a true freshman, a guy who looks decent running the ball between the tackles and C.J. Stokes, but... They certainly do not have a lightning and lightning combination the way that I thought they were going to. So whenever Edwards gets back, there is another gear for this Michigan offense to hit yet. Well, I, you know what? Michigan fans can get plenty of Michigan discussions and content absolutely everywhere on the internet. Let's talk about Maryland for a second because suddenly the ceiling on this team, I mean, with an admirable performance here, suddenly the ceiling on this team looks higher. Again, the defense acquitted itself better than I expected it to. Um... Where do we think this can top out if, you know, the offensive skill players remain healthy? Probably seven or eight wins. Uh, they still have games left against Ohio State and Penn State. Uh, I would not list Michigan State as a cause for concern. They're going to win this Saturday probably pretty easily, they being Maryland. Um, the, the one thing I am going to take a look at, though, is if there's any meaningful information on injury status here. Uh, Rakeem Jarrett and... Tonga Bailoa both went down. Unclear how their availability is affected. More information available um, as of post game yesterday. Certainly, I'd say that uh, for me, Mike Loxley's, uh, I guess, to use a cliched expression, stock is looking up from the beginning of the season. Um, yeah, maybe so. But it, honestly, like, if you're going to have an injury to your starting quarterback, Michigan State's the team you want to be facing right now. Right, welcome to the world, Billy Edwards. You're going to complete 80% of your passes and probably go for over 400 yards. Um, of course, we are still talking about September Maryland. But moving into our next game, Central Michigan went to Penn State and hung in there for a little bit. Yeah. And then the uh, barn doors got blown out. Yeah, and the talent differential just became a little bit too much. Central Michigan does have a number of skill players that will that are known to those of us who dabble in the more degenerate fantasy and you know college football oriented parts of the world. Uh, quarterback, their Richardson I think is the better Richardson quarterback, who's kind of a dual threat um, as opposed to Florida's overrated disaster, who's still got more tackles on the season than he does touchdown passes. Well, I mean, I will say this. 
the thing that surprised me in this game is that the best player on the field really got held in check, and also Nick Singleton didn't do much. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, of course, talking, talking about Lou Nichols, about the, the Lou, Lou Canoe. The Lou Canoe, uh, the key to your JMC surge last season. Indeed. Uh, I'm doing pretty badly this this year, although I did play a Kansas player to much success. Uh, we live in strange times. Um, also, we do indeed. Many players in our league played Georgia's defense against Kent State. <laughs> and thought that was a good idea. Um, also of note in this game, former Maryland receiver Carlos Carrier, I think is how you say his name, or Carrier? I don't know. Carrier. Um, I, he doesn't come off as especially French to me, but anyway... He has oh transferred, transferred to Central to a receiver room that actually already has a couple of options, and he had himself a big game against Penn State. So 11 for 111, but I am more interested in Central Michigan's... Look, I only see him as a receiver, but I'm going to assume he's a tight end because his... No, he's listed at receiver. His name is Noah Koenigsknecht. Oh, yeah, I've never heard... I mean, that's, that's an H-back name if I've ever heard one. DeWitt, Michigan. All right. It's in any case... Good. Um, not much more to say about Penn State other than that they uh, they put away a MAC team. Yeah, MAC, they, as we've kind of discussed, is uh, really on the struggle bus as a conference this year. Down this year, they let Central hang around a bit longer than you might have guessed, but it's not the kind of thing that really gives you cause for. It's not like Central Michigan was like running for seven yards a carry or something. Well, and Penn State remember, just Central Penn State Michigan... just faffed around a little bit, and sometimes that'll happen in the night. Like you can't do full effort. Full sharp, you know, maximum efficiency every week. It just doesn't go that way. And Central Michigan did go to Oklahoma State, uh, get a whole bunch of points scored on them, and then kind of caught Oak State napping and yeah. came back to within two touchdowns, yeah, I mean, scored a bunch in the second half. They have dudes at the skill positions that can do some stuff if you're not going to be sharp. So, so good on Penn State for not letting off the gas. Yeah. Um, you know who else didn't let off the gas? And once the second quarter started, was the Cincinnati Bearcats against the Hoosiers, who's Magical three and zero, living on a prayer season, has reached three and one. Yeah, I mean they're technically still tied for the lead in the Big Ten East, um, but yeah, it, this it, it's funny because last year I I do think this Indiana team is better than they were last year for sure. Or they're, no, they're I, I don't think there's a question. Or they're at least more balanced. That their defense may not be quite what it was. But they are better overall because of how much better they are offensively, especially at the skill spots. But they were pretty well outclassed by Cincinnati, which is still an American team. Like they're going to the Big Twelve, and Luke Fickle has built something pretty impressive there. They've been good for a long time outside of the Tommy Tuberville era. Uh, surprise, surprise. But to be kind of worked over like this. Is a little bit it, it, a reminder, not news because we've seen this before, but a reminder of Indiana's ceiling being pretty low. Cincinnati was a playoff team last year, right? Yeah, and they I mean, lost. They lost a ton, though. There's no question they lost a lot. But you don't get to that level, yeah, without having without having quality some, depth. Without, yeah, right. So even losing top five pick in Sauce Gardner, multi-year starting quarterback, sort of franchise cornerstone, or, you know. Program cornerstone guy in Desmond Ritter, and a number of other guys. Um, Alec Pierce got drafted by the Colts. Like they they lost a lot from last year, but they have built and not only a decent recruiting base on paper, but also a development system that has served them very well. So yes, not surprising that Cincinnati is the more talented team, but a little bit of a reminder of 
Indiana, even finding their footing a little bit here at the beginning of the year, is you're still going to be dealing with a six or seven win ceiling. Well, or to put it less charitably, uh, they could not pull enough golden horseshoes out of their ass to overcome the yeah. massive disparity um, just between the quality of Cincinnati's you know depth everywhere, basically. I mean, because that run that Cincinnati went on was, you know, not just it was two passing touchdowns and then a fumble return touchdown. It just the wheels completely fell off for Indiana late in the second quarter. And by that point, the score difference was so big that, you know, you can't really run a balanced game plan anymore. Yeah. Yep. Um, and there's, there's really not a whole lot else to say about it. Um, this It's still, still, still comes back to um, offensive line play or rather the lack of it. And I don't Speaking know of which, if, if we have to. It's time. It's time. Um, sure. So... What this Michigan State-Minnesota result confirms for the Michigan State side, to me, at least as we sit here, is that the Washington result last week was not a one-off. It was not a result of playing a dramatically underrated opponent on the road. Rather, it was a confirmation that, first of all, this defense is a disaster and remains a disaster. So I saw a tweet from Chris Solari. I think he's with Lansing State Journal now, covers the Michigan State beat. Indicating that so this was this was the twenty fourth game of the Mel Tucker era with his current coaching staff, at least with the coordinator. They've had a couple assistants change, but the coordinators have been the same. Scotty Hazelton has been the guy responsible for the defense. In twenty four games, Michigan State has allowed at least four hundred total yards fifteen times, and they've allowed five hundred yards six times. If I'm thinking back to my math. That means that one out of every four games, they're giving up 500 yards of total offense. In the Big Ten, which sure means they play Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and Purdue. It also means they play Minnesota. And Rutgers and Indiana. Well, I don't think either of those teams did those numbers. They but certainly still. didn't. But point is, those are populating this. That, yeah, it's a data set that has Rutgers and Indiana and Akron in it. Like, every time they play an opponent with any sort of competence on offense, they get absolutely lit on fire. It's true. They do have a number of injuries on the defensive side of the ball that have like, <laughs> they're missing Jacob Slade. Who's an all conference caliber defensive tackle. Darius snow's out for the year. Xavier Henderson's out indefinitely, but they had all those guys last year and they still sucked. They chose, and I commented on this both when I was writing them up for our off-season series and when we were talking about it when we did the podcast and going into the season, they only chose to bring in one defensive back through the transfer portal. Everybody else is back from last year. It told I, it made me think, well, they must think that they can fix this with the guys that they have. That's they what a, I concluded as well because had, yeah. I remember saying that because I, I remember... When I looked at the outline, I saw, hold on a second. We've got all the memes right about Mel Tucker. So I'm thinking for sure they're going to rotate that entire secondary. I would have guessed that they would bring more bodies in. Now, I suppose it's still technically true. You can't actually force guys to leave if they have eligibility remaining. But come on, that happens all the time. Instead, they chose to bring in more linebackers and edge rusher type guys to try to goose that. Well... That hasn't worked. Um, I was very hopeful that the Brandon Jordan hiring was going to bring 
quicker results in improving the pass rush. In the first couple games, it kind of looked like it had. Jacoby Winman was an unstoppable terror. Turned out that was just a function of playing a couple of pretty bad MAC teams. Neither Western Michigan nor Akron has done anything outside of their Michigan State matchups to make you think that those results have any weight at all. So this is still a pass rush that can't put any pressure on the quarterback. Now in consecutive weeks, we've seen Michael Penix and Tanner Morgan look like Peyton Manning throwing against this defense. And it's just so many times in the back end, guys, it, they do this pattern matching thing that requires basically everybody to make the same read and to make it correctly. It's just not happening. It, when Tucker was hired, one of the first things that happened, and like the, the thing that kind of gave me some pause at the time, was almost every corner on the roster transferred. They all left. Oh. And it was like, you know, as much as things did fall apart under D'Antonio late, the guy knew how to find a cornerback. Presumably one or two of those guys ended up, would have been decent players with appropriate coaching. They brought in all these transfers, a lot of them from SEC programs. It was like, all right, clearly they're looking for something pretty different here. Or perhaps what happened was they went talking with these corners that were on the roster, showed them kind of what the scheme was going to be, and they went, well, fuck it, I ain't doing that. Well, look, it is, it's a very different scheme. It's a lot more zone. D'Antonio's scheme was a lot of press man with quarters on top of it. So it is a different scheme. But it's just so many times, uh, if the coverage is even anywhere close, these guys don't, like, none of them know how to play their keys. They, none, of, none of them ever have any idea the pass is coming. Even if they are close enough to a receiver to catch it to do something about it, which is not often. A lot of the time, guys are wide the hell open. I, I lost track of how many times Minnesota had receivers on any in-breaking route or tight ends in the middle, near the middle of the field, wide open every time. And it's baffling how it's still so bad, how they made no adjustments, apparently learned nothing from the Washington game. against it. And Minnesota is a step down in terms of the offensive skill players on the outside. They're fine. But Washington's guys were way the hell better. Remember, I mean, there was one credible threat at receiver that you were really worried about and he was before hurt. the season, and he was hurt. Yeah, And he's hurt. So that Minnesota still had that kind of success. They got no pressure. I mean, Tanner Morgan scrambled for two third and ten pluses. I, I didn't watch much of this game, but I did see the one where he, uh, it looked kind of like he was trying to dive, but he instead kind of deked a linebacker for a first down. And at that point, I kind of... I kind of knew it was. It felt like it was over. Yeah, it's. And the one thing I have seen is a lot of Michigan State fans um, longing for the return to the days of the D'Antonio defense. I'm like, no, what you want is the return to like the 2012 to 2015 defenses, because after that they were pretty bad too. Uh, it has been a long time since Michigan State had a complete defense. They're generally pretty good against the run. And uh, anyway, enough talk about that. It, it was a disaster. Um, on the offensive side, this offensive line is still terrible. They've been terrible since, again, about 2014, maybe 2015 at the latest. And a lot of the time, whether it was Connor Cook, whether it was Kenneth Walker, when they've had success, it has been in spite of the offensive line, not because they've gotten any better. This, it's been one of the you know, 15 to 20 worst Power 5 offensive lines for almost a decade. An offensive line is a thing that takes years to fix. Really? Yeah, I mean, and there's, but the, that's that's really the most discouraging thing is the guys that they've now settled into playing are four carryovers from the D'Antonio era and two transfers. 
none of the guys that Tucker and his staff have recruited play real time on the field. They started Brandon Baldwin against Western Michigan. I had thought Horst was hurt. He ended up playing anyway. They haven't missed, seen him since. They kind of missed the 2020 recruiting class, right? Because of when he was brought in? Um, yes and no. Basically, 2020's recruiting class, I attribute to Mark D'Antonio. Because I think Tucker had the time to like sign one dude that he wanted. Right, okay. That's that, basically what I was asking. Yeah, that guy has already transferred out. So yeah, it, 2020 was D'Antonio's last recruiting class, yes. Um, but I mean, the first couple of classes, they, like, yeah, you don't expect them to play true freshmen, but the guys that they picked, you would sure like to see one of them make this rotation when this line has underwhelmed for so long. Um, and so with that offensive line being so bad, the play calling set them up to fail as well because they spent like they did against Washington, spent the first couple possessions trying to run between the tackles. We can't do that because we don't move any defensive linemen. Um, and then by the time they turn, the, they decide to throw the keys to Peyton Thorne and be like, all right, well, you see if you can fix it. They're down two scores. Um, he hasn't, I mean, I can't say that Thorne has been good, but he hasn't been as bad as he's getting credit for. The thing is, he, they need him to save this team the way Kenneth Walker did, and he's not up for it. It's not fair to ask him to be. Because he's well, not Kenneth Walker. Nobody so is. So what do you think they could reasonably do to... It sounds like what you're talking about with the defense is not something that you can fix over the course of a year. Um, I have maybe, no idea. Perhaps, I, perhaps more reps could do it, but there's certainly not a change you can make, a button you can flip that can really do anything about that. It's just the guys have to get more reps in the system. What I have, And they might never get enough because I saw the same thing happen in my school. Maybe... What I have seen proposed by a couple people is they could start playing more cover one with basically a single high center fielder, get more guys closer to the line of scrimmage on the intermediate routes that have absolutely lit them on fire, and maybe that would help. I don't know. It do really, we know if that's a thing that they would actually do, though? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. There are some coaching staffs that will do those things. There are some that will just say, like, no, no, this is what we do. And we're going to keep doing it until our guys get it. I will say we're two full seasons into disastrous results now, and they have not made that change yet. I don't know what it would be about this loss. Um, other than the fact that I will tell you, the fans were booing very early in the game Saturday. Um, because it was it was such a similar game script to how the Washington game played out. Just like in slower motion, because Minnesota doesn't take deep shots. Oh, yeah, and that, that's, that's a jarring thing, is that you kind of figure that with the skill guys Washington has that they're going to be a team that wants to throw the ball. You yeah. know that Minnesota does not want to throw the ball. No, they, they want desperately to not throw the ball. I Even from the, up, from the upper deck on the other side of the stadium, I saw tears in P.J. Fleck's eyes as Tanner Morgan marched up and down the field, completely But like, there pass. was a point at which he was 15 for 18 for 187 yards. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, boy, my Syracuse cast-off is going to go balls deep in this secondary. Every quarterback they play, I mean, again, aside from perhaps Rutgers, there is no quarterback left on the schedule who can't light this defense on fire. Um, but all right, so let's talk about this from the Minnesota perspective then. Because of all the things I just laid out about Michigan State, I would caution against reading too much into this. But what is clear at this point, based on this game, their previous results, and also the outcomes from the rest of the division, is that Minnesota is in pole position to win the West. And there's really no question about it. If they don't win the West at this point, given what things look like right now, Fleck should be fired because he's never going to win them anything of significance. It would certainly be a hell of a choke job. 
They don't play. They don't play Michigan. They don't play Ohio State. This was supposed yeah. to be one of the tougher games on their schedule, and they handled it no problem. Wisconsin looks like trash. Iowa doesn't have a doesn't have an offense. Purdue will screw things up somehow. At, at this point, honestly, Illinois the, is the biggest yeah, challenge they have, yeah. and Illinois <laughs> fucked it up against Indiana. Like, yeah, and that's <laughs> you already have a loss in hand. So. <laughs> Uh, if Minnesota does not win the West by at least a game and by at least two games this season, they are never going to. It will be proof positive that Fleck, for whatever his positive, however much they just love him and his goofy acronyms and shit, it would be proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is never going to win anything of significance. So you may as well move on because at that point, you're wasting everybody's time. They should win the division. They should win it easily. Very solid across the board. Um, I had a feeling the two. I mean, it gets so. The thing we mentioned with the offensive lines, oh man, it's difficult to, you know, refix it overnight. Minnesota's two transfers on the right side look pretty damn good, especially in pass protection, which was not a thing they were supposed to be any good that at. That is a very uncommon thing. I will say this. They yeah, have, and look, these are these guys results way above and these guys what are, you should these, expect. These guys are grad transfers. Like Phil Younga and Carroll had both played multiple years at high at top level programs, Michigan and Notre Dame. So when you can get guys like that, yes, you can fix things in a hurry. I understand that it's difficult to find those guys because there aren't very many of them. <laughs> if you actually play in a top-level school like that, chances are your team isn't going to let you go, um, and you're probably not going to want to go. And you're not going, yeah, because you'll be you'll be the start. You'll be a starting tackle at Notre Dame, um, but Carroll never quite solidified himself in that role. Phil Younga had kind of been supplanted by younger guys at Michigan as well, so it can be done. It. it <laughs> It certainly shouldn't take several years the way it looks like it's going to because, man, the line doesn't look like it's anywhere close. I like our receivers, um, but the problem is between the play calling and the fact that Thorne is very hit or miss, there's no effective way to use them. So you mentioned is there a way to fix this from the Michigan State side. Defensively, I have no idea. I think probably not. Maybe getting guys like Slater Henderson back could help a bit. Offensively, I think they have to realize they're a pass-first team and not light a couple possessions on fire going three and out after their defense has been on the field for seven or eight minutes and then giving the ball right back to the opponent. Yeah, because this is one of the things that I, uh, that I do. is like he might just have a little bit of Big Ten brain where it's like, no, look, it would be foolhardy to lead with the thing that we're good at. It would be immodest. You got. You have to keep things reasonable and buttoned up, and then you can't. Come on, you can't. You d- you're 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 in year three on the job. You cannot be that Big Ten brained already. I would like to think that he's that he, that's not possible. But again, I will say it. These last couple games have done almost as much to shake my faith in the long term progression arc here as last year did to build it. Um, this is <laughs> It is not good, and there is no indication that's going to get better or that they have any idea how to fix it. In any case, it seems like we're going to get a lot of mileage out of the uh, out of that fleck jingle I made a couple weeks ago. Hmm. Sure does. Moving on to the night games, I caught pieces of these, uh, you know, eating my feelings at a sports bar after the game. Florida Atlantic at Purdue was almost a 20-point line, and then... Aiden O'Connell was kind of a surprise injury scratch. And without him, Austin Burton was fine at the wheel, but they definitely lack the verticality that their offense is defined by without O'Connell throwing the ball. That's very clear. Are you? Because I didn't watch that much of this game. I just kind of watched the end of it. I only saw the end as well. But it sounds like you're saying that for, for both teams, all the passes came within five yards of line of scrimmage. You're saying that you watched 
the Packers Bucks game from earlier today. Oh my god! Where for whatever you know, Tom Brady of course was being Tom Brady, and Aaron Rodgers was well, like, the only way to beat him is to be Tom Brady. So I'm going to throw <laughs> two yards short of the sticks on third and four. I will look. I'm I'm not one to make excuses for Tom Brady. It is true that a lot of his receivers are hurt or suspended for fighting. Um, it is also true that he has receivers because his front office didn't decide to prank him by seeing what he could do if he didn't have any. It is a pretty sick prank, though. You have to admit, it's a pretty sick prank. Uh, so anyway, Austin Burton completed 21 of his passes, but only got 166 yards on them. Um, again, plainly not the same sort of vertical connectivity that Aiden O'Connell has with his receivers. Purdue did run the ball better than they have recently, but again, this is Florida Atlantic. You should have been able to run the ball on them, and it, this should not have been as close as it was. Um the Lane Kiffin FAU is long dead. No, yeah. I mean, Devin Singletary ain't exactly walking through that door. Uh, let's talk about a team that failed to escape an, an owl, a bird that was visiting them. Um, that being Northwestern. It's going to have to be the Green Day drop here. There's just no other way around it. Done this on several <laughs> podcasts in the past. There's no way, I, there's no way around it. Here it, it is. It's truer every year, man. Summer has come and passed. The innocent can never last. Wake me up when September ends. Like my father's come to pass. Seven years has gone so fast. Wake me up. September ends. Miami of Ohio, not again. We've mentioned repeatedly the Mac is down, and Miami is not an especially good Mac team, especially because their quarterback is hurt. Brett Gabbert was going to be their starter, has been their starter for years, and he's out indefinitely, I believe. I don't know if he's projected yeah, to come I mean, back he, at all. It's going to be a long time. So they're starting a kid, Avion Smith, who, again, like, yeah, maybe he's got some upside. He ain't much of a thrower of the ball, which, as I understand it, is very important for the throwing the ball I mean, position. He's by, f- I mean, Gabbert, by far the best player on this team. Yes, by a mile, and he didn't play. And so, with a quarterback throwing for a 7-for-19 line for less than 100 yards, I think 57 yards he ended up with, Miami nonetheless beat Northwestern because they absolutely ran the Wildcats over. That it was only a three-score game is remarkable and is really only a testament to the fact that Miami missed two field goals. Um, it, it just... Things have gone... Be- like, I know we keep commenting on the September Northwestern thing. I gotta say, this feels like things have gone bad in a much deeper, more profound way than, oh, you know, they, they play this buttoned-up offense, they goof around, they lose these low-scoring games. What are you gonna do? They'll be fine. Like, they are not gonna be fine when they start playing conference opponents again. I mean, this wasn't quite the anomaly that that Akron loss in 2018 was. Or the game last week was. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, I don't know. What else can you say, man? Uh, Ryan Holinsky drops back to pass. 16 years have gone so fast. Wake (laughs) Pat up when September ends. Yeah, and maybe he'll find another quarterback, but it... I don't know if you can blame Holinsky here. Malik Washington, their best receiver, lost two fumbles in the game. <laughs> like it's, they oh, yeah. Their skill guys cannot stop fumbling the ball. They do not play it with the kind of margin of error. Like we, we, 
how many times in their good years have we marveled at how good they are in close games? That is because they never make the mistakes. They don't make the mistakes, but this year, Washington Hull's had a couple fumbles at critical times. Helinski's fumbled and thrown picks. Like they are now turning the ball over in the critical spot. When they play a ton of close games, that's just going to mean that that's just going to mean that now they lose a ton of close games. You know, pretty pretty deep into booze during uh, some of the shittier hat games, I've almost certainly yelled something to the effect of, "This would be a two and ten goddamn team if they turn the ball over two more times a game." Oh shit! Two more times a game is a lot to ask for, but one more is not fluky at all, and it kind of feels like those years. Of positive turnover, I don't want to say luck, but positive turnover culture, I suppose, have caught up with them, and all those all those years of the plus one, plus two, every game in the turnover margin are being paid back in space. Because here's the thing, they didn't generate any turnovers in this game. No, not, I mean, not, not in the traditional sense of fumbles and interceptions. I tend to think of things like missed field goals as being turnovers. Yeah. But I but, yes. in the but, stat but column, Miami no. did not turn it over. No, but it's again they also only threw the ball nineteen times, so they played a pretty about as conservative and buttoned up of an approach as you can have from a play calling perspective. And I think Keon Mosey ran the ball like honestly, 30 times. Northwestern straight up got out big tens in this game. There's really no other way to put it um, because they got nearly doubled. They got doubled up in rushing yards almost exactly. Uh, they got out punted, right? Yeah. They got out time of possession. Yeah, there's and they I lost mean, the turnover battle. They got straight up out Big Ten, and they are one and three with only a conference win over Nebraska. Rest of the Big Ten slate to go with their easiest Big Ten game, arguably already in the rearview mirror. Um, it's just they may not win another game. Like it's entirely possible. They're certainly not going to win this week. We'll get to that in the preview episode. That's a teaser, folks. Before we get to that, a couple more games to go over in the conference. I saw another team had as bad of a day as I did. I'm going to wave at you from across Lake Michigan. We're not actually anywhere close to the lake, but you know, metaphorically speaking, we are. Um, Wisconsin at Ohio State game was over very quickly, as thorough a domination as Minnesota-Michigan State was. So look, at least I am reminded that when my team has to play Ohio State in a few weeks, they at least will have the courtesy to break our necks quickly so that I can get on with my fucking day. Yeah, that's. It certainly doesn't seem like you'll 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 have any uh, you know false pretenses about the way this that game is going to go. It was twenty eight to nothing, a couple minutes into the second quarter, and at that point, like, yeah, you can you can you can go and rake some leaves. They're falling now. You can go and uh, you know get your yard projects done. You can make sure that your all your shit's winterized. Um, you know, really early in the season. Yeah, it's true. I um, I could finish the planter. I really only have just like a little bit of masonry work. I actually got the rose bush in the ground. I'm very pleased with how it looks. Got a little bit of work to do on the new shed to finish waterproofing. I'm still getting water in it every time it rains, but not a lot. It's just like damp cement in the morning. Yeah, so. you know, as you're finishing, you know, cleaning up and organizing the garage because it's almost time that you have to put the car in it. You know, you hear over the radio, hey, uh, Jackson Eckert is two-yard pass from Grand Merch for a touchdown. Cut it 45-14. Huh, huh, ain't that something? And you need to go back. Now you get get out your edger and you, you know. Good for him. Good for him for catching that touchdown. Iowa at Rutgers. Um, the over hit, so this game was a disappointment. That's all you need to know. 
the punting display was merely pretty good instead of the all-timer that we were promised it could be that was billed as. Iowa remains literally the worst offense in FBS. Boy, if you were to combine Iowa's offense with Michigan State's defense, you would have Colorado, basically. You would have Colorado. So, well, look, let's put it this way. Iowa broke this game open by doing the following things. A uh, pick six, and by a pick six, I mean an eight, well, a 45-yard pick six. It was a deep pass, which, not sure what Rutgers is doing throwing deep passes, but usually if you throw a deep pass and it gets picked off, it's not going all the way. It's tough to do, usually. Um, it usually functions as a punt, but... Then, there were four punts, and then Rutgers fumbled, and that was returned for a touchdown, and at that point, it was 14-3, to and if you've got the kind of offense that Rutgers does, the kind of game scripts that they liked, the game was functionally over. Yeah. It's it's so difficult to win when you cannot come from behind in any real capacity if you're more than a, if you're more than a quarter into the game. Like they take so long to score points and score so few of them that yeah, it, any kind of explosive moment, whether it's the opposing offense actually doing something deliberately and scripting out scoring touchdown, or just like you said, like a bad snap, or you lose a fumble, or something like that. Like, suddenly you are in an insurmountable hole. Uh, and I understand that they're coming from a place of deep talent deficit against most of their opponents. But it is year three for him, too. They should be able to catch up to Iowa, right? If they are recruiting the way that 24-7 keeps telling me that they're recruiting. Yeah, we'll see. Again, like, this is probably about the last season where you can continue to be like, all right, well, you know, what do you really expect? you got to be patient. If you get to year four, it's like, all right, you know, Greg Schiano came in here very confidently and aggressively blustering about, I have a plan that's the best plan ever. You need to give me all this money and all this control and not ask any questions. Just do what I tell you, and this is going to work. Okay, you're the only guy who's done that in the modern history of this football program, so I can understand the athletic department being like, let's do it. Not the only coach. Oh, well, no. No, no. Can you name the only coach to win a conference title at Rutgers in the last 30 years? No. Kyle Flood. He won the Big East in uh, 2012. Oh, I was going to say, what in the holy hell are you talking about? But, okay. <laughs> Kyle Flood won the Big East in 2012, I promise you. I believe you. Also I, lost at home to Kent State. No one can prove that that didn't happen. Um, okay, we're running a bit long here. That tends to happen when I've talked about my team for bad reasons. So we'll take a quick spin around the country. Friday night, Syracuse, Virginia was batshit. Multiple changes of possession late. Confirm my suspicion that actually the ACC is not the Big 12. It is now the Pac-12 because that was a classic Pac-12 after dark kind of game. We will see if we still get any enjoyment out of the ACC because Clemson ended up beating Wake Forest in double overtime. Just such a tragedy. Look, we are in shambles. College football writers and real, not I'm sorry, not college football writers, national sports writers like to talk about the things that would be good for college football. Like, for some reason... It's great for college football when Nebraska's really good and Michigan is really good. I'll tell you what's good for college football fans. Clemson losing because look what happened last year when they were eliminated from, like, they were they became an afterthought after taking... Because after they dropping lost to Georgia in the... No, they, they yeah. lost to Georgia oh, and then right. they lost to NC State. Right. Right. And look how fun the ACC was. It was wild, wild west out there. It was classic Big 12. It, yeah, every... All these f- high-flying offenses, for one thing, certainly helped, but... In that every team was alive for the conference, it, yeah, every game felt like it actually mattered. 
You know what doesn't? You know what happens if Michigan is good and Nebraska is good? The games they play don't matter because they win every game. That's not fun to watch. Yeah. See, and and when you're saying it, it's not just every game matters. It's also every game matters, and the defenses are bad, and the offenses are good, which means you have these huge swings instead of just you know like Saban like early Saban era SEC where it's like oh he's got you know a, just coaches staring at each other from across the sideline in a ten to seven game. Yeah, and it's like Alabama's got a two-score lead in the second quarter. This is insurmountable. The game's yeah, over. The game's like, over. <laughs> why does anyone want to watch that is our point. So anyway, Boise State continued their absolute disintegration, losing by three scores to UTEP. Uh, it's hard to get to the top of the mountain as a group of five school. It's harder to stay there through multiple coaching turnovers, and it sure doesn't look like Boise is going to be... It's old self much longer. They're, it they're is not incredible that. how long they held on. Yeah, fifteen years. But ultimately, it was largely due to one coach. Yeah, and I mean that thing. That coach was not Dan Hawkins, by the way, Colorado. No, no, that would be that would be Peterson, and that things continued as you know reasonably well as they did for a few years after he was gone. Brian Harson, very much the Mark Helfrich of the situation. Yeah, there. like. The guy, the guy who's like, um, okay, uh, things are still like, <laughs> like just bailing water frantically out. Like, okay, we're still floating. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. What, what do you mean you're upset? Why are you upset? Why are you talking about firing me? This boat isn't sinking. Why would you say the boat's sinking as he's like up to his knees in water? The difference, of course, being that Harson got out before he could be fired. Oh yeah, he jumped into the lifeboat for sure. Yeah, of course that lifeboat was. Auburn football, which is not really the most reliable one. Well, he gets, what, like a 12, 13, whatever million dollar No, he's going to get a $15 like, million dollar buyout when he's fired. However... I'd call that a decent lifeboat. He had a stay of execution. Because, as Auburn fans, of course, always very horny to fire their coach, they played Missouri, who was starting to lose faith in their coach. And this game was 14 nothing. I think, Auburn. Missouri went and scored... Uh, 14 points, and then it just kind of got stuck there. It just got completely stuck, and yeah, it was stuck. No, it was 14 nothing Auburn, first quarter. Second quarter, Missouri scored 14, and then it was a scoreless second half. Yeah. Totally scoreless <laughs> second half. Just brutal, brutal game. Missouri had what seemed like a game-winning drive going all the way down to inside the Auburn 10, to set up a 27-yard game-winning field goal thick. By which I mean they sent out a 260-pound kicker who pushed it to the right, tragically. So then Auburn scored in a field goal in the first overtime. Missouri fumbled it into the end zone on their overtime, which meant that that was one of those rare games where both teams' fans are just beside themselves with the result. Missouri <laughs> fans, of course, losing their last bits, bit of hope in Eli Drinkwitz. As they, you know, as they've had to see Connor Basilak put together magical drives for Indiana, uh, while they don't have a quarterback, and Auburn fans desperately wanting to fire to, Brian to lose every game so they can fire their coach. But really, look at look at what Auburn did after the first quarter and tell me that Brian Harson wasn't also pretty okay with his fifteen million dollar golden parachute. Yeah, <laughs> he had ex- he was a man who had accepted his fate. Um. And then it just could not be delivered to him. So anyway, uh, Ohio beat Fordham with 500 yards for each quarterback later. They uh, won 59-52. Otherwise, the Mac continues to struggle. Although, 
Northern Illinois had themselves a Lombardi party at Kentucky. Well, that just means they kept the game kind of close for a while. Oh, that's what a Lombardi party is. Hey, that's conference champion Rocky Lombardi to you, sir. Absolutely. Uh, um, the Sun Belt is now where the MAC was 10 years ago as far as the quality of competition, their ability to you know, pull off upsets of Power 5. But App State is appointment television. Once again, they blew a 28-3 lead to James Madison. Uh, there is not a more entertaining team in the country than Appalachian State. Nope. <laughs> not at all. Uh, side note, Houston Baptist changed their name to Houston Christian. Uh, to be more non-denominational, which of course means Baptist, right? The yes. non-denominational Christian churches are always just Baptist. Yeah. But in any case, they haven't scored since they made the name change. Now, would you like to hear the most surprising thing that has ever happened in the history of college football? Chris Kleeman's unranked K-State knocked off a top 10 Oklahoma team. Oh my God, who could ever have possibly predicted that something like this would happen? For the third time in, what, like four or five years? I think he's been there five years now. So yeah. the, if, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, they're the only ranked team that he's beaten. Yeah. He just has their number. It's incredible. I've never now seen across, anything quite like it. Now across two coaching staffs, too, so it's, it's a little entertaining. Uh, um, yeah, two fairly different coaching staffs, too. Presumably, this is what... Nebraska and Scott Frost thought they had with Adrian Martinez as the guy who showed up in this game. Oh boy, yeah. Adrian Martinez uh, led a game icing drive and took it in the end zone himself. Yeah. Um, Good for him, by the way. After what he went through in Lincoln, I I think he deserves that. Well, what do you think is the difference between (coughs) the situation in K-State and the situation in Nebraska, and why is the answer coaching? I think I'll leave it at that. Um, if number seven USC narrowly escapes Corvallis despite the Beaver quarterback throwing four interceptions, but it's literally impossible to see the game on any television anywhere, can the Pac-12 sue Larry Scott and get back all that money they paid him? What a catastrophe. There were no other interesting games on after the 4.30 window ended, more or less, and USC is in a tight game with an Oregon State program that's on the rise, has a dynamic young coach who's improved I mean, they really, honestly... And you can't watch it. People who had the Pac-12 network couldn't watch it. Oregon State had him dead to rights. Yeah, there was no way to watch this. And I don't understand what the AP is doing uh, by enabling this behavior, by continuing to vote USC. How would you know how good they were this week? You You didn't see them play. We know for sure that none of the voters actually watched this game because you couldn't have. Send a message. Drop them. (laughs) So... Anyway, um, we're going to conclude with just an observation in the wake of the Middle Tennessee upset of Miami, one of the more stunning upsets of the last decade. I mean, and the manner in which it was delivered. I mean, it was an ass-kicking. It was a wire-to-wire oh, yeah. ass-kicking. Yeah, it was not close. Um, Miami, Miami scored. Miami started to get their offensive momentum back. And Middle Tennessee just kept fucking scoring. And it's just a quick reminder that when he was at Oregon, Mario Cristobal had Justin Herbert and made him look like, eh, that quarterback's kind of all right. Uh, scored one touchdown against Michigan State in the Red Box Bowl with Justin Herbert. That's what Miami threw the bag at Mario Cristobal for. Oh, and he recruits real good. Like, like they need a recruiter in the era of NIL. <laughs> so the observation Doesn't here, that take though, care of itself? The key observation here, though, is... Rick Stockstill has had a fascinating career. That would be the Middle Tennessee State head coach. Yes, in his, he has been at Middle Tennessee as long as Pat Fitzgerald has been at Northwestern. Yeah. Since 2006, 
and uh, if you take out his best and his worst seasons, and also 2020 because it's weird, his uh, take out his best season, which was a 10-3 and 3 in 2009, and his worst, which was a 2-10 in 2011. Of the remaining, what, whatever, 14 or so, uh, his worst is 4-8, and eight, and his best is 8-5. and five. This is a man who's comfortable to dance around 500, and he keeps getting these kind of upsets. He, he does get the occasional upset. He's got the occasional really fun and fascinating player. I remember the, uh, the Asher O'Hara year uh, in 2018, the, uh, the Dwight Dasher year back in 2009, the Richie James year in 2016. Oh, yeah. Okay. Richie James, 2016, them and FAU played a game that scored around 130 points. Um, so this is, this guy's so interesting because he never quite is good enough for a sustained period of time to where he gets poached, but he's obviously never bad enough to get fired. He yeah. even survived a period of like three or four years where his son was the starting quarterback <laughs> yes. and then just kind of, you know, went to like the next guy who was not related to him and he, he just kind of keeps on trucking. Yeah, in modern football, there are not many guys who can occupy that spot in the ecosystem anymore. Um, even group of five schools now tend to get a little antsy if you go a few years and don't really win anything. <clears throat> Middle Tennessee is in Murfreesboro, which is like 45 minutes southeast of Nashville. So it's pretty well in the middle of nowhere. Um, Tennessee is decent recruiting territory, but obviously it's an SEC country, so they're not getting any of the top players. And there are plenty of other established Sunbelt programs that get the second tier of guys in that area. So that he's that he's just sort of, he's very much the guy who's like, on the you know he's he's Milton from Office Space before the consultants come in. Now, <laughs> now you can't see his record right now, can you? No, because he has coached two hundred three games at Middle Tennessee. Would you like to guess how many he's won? I'm gonna guess like a hundred. I'm gonna guess a hundred. A hundred four. He is a hundred four and ninety nine. So yep. Okay. He is an eternal seven and six season. I was assuming. See, I was getting. I get kind of big Jeff Fisher vibes from him. So I was assuming his winning percentage would work out to slightly below five hundred. But it turns out he's better than Jeff Fisher. Yeah, he's roughly a... Look, if the Titans decide they want to move on from Mike Vrabel, they've had kind of a rough start to the season here, one and two, despite being top seed in the AFC last year. You could do better than hiring this avatar of Rick Fisher. He has two championships and conferences, 2006 Sunbelt and the 2018 Conference USA East. He was Conference USA Coach of the Year in 2018 and also Sunbelt Coach of the Year in 2006 and 2009. It's amazing how spread out this stuff is. Yeah. I don't know. I'm fascinated with this dude. I hope he coaches there forever. <laughs> well, he, he's been there as long as Pat Fitzgerald has Northwestern. He has been there forever already in coaching terms. His first year at Middle Tennessee was the year Brett Bielema took over at Wisconsin. <laughs> And yet, if you were to ask even very serious college football fans, who's the coach at Middle Tennessee State before this week? I don't think but 5% of them could have told you stock still. Maybe maybe some of them would have guessed, like, is it still that guy whose kid was the quarterback? Socky, socks, sock something, whatever his name is. And they, like, they might have found their way to it. But in terms of actually being aware of him in this program, no, nobody knew about this until they beat Miami. <laughs> Yep. Well, I mean, they are the only directional colored Raiders that I was aware of. I did a graph about this a while, or Venn diagram about this a while ago. <laughs> yes. The only directional colored Raiders that I was aware of. 
source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle. Empire!